Welcome to the latest episode of the Silver Screen Superman podcast, hosted through Bureau 42, celebrating the 75th anniversary of Superman. As usual, I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. The last film that we discussed was Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, released in 1987. Now, it would take 19 years for Superman to actually make it onto the screen again, although it would take a lot less than that before people started looking at it. Two years after The Quest for Peace came out, Tim Burton's first Batman film was released, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, and it was an undeniable success. Given the previous success of the Superman franchise, the new success of a new superhero, of course the first thing Warner Brothers did was to say, hey, how do we get Superman back on the screen? So they were trying to relaunch the franchise. Now, Tim Burton had proven his ability to do that with Batman, so they went to him, and he was attached to direct a Superman relaunch. Kevin Smith was brought on as a screenwriter, although if you check out DVDs like An Evening with Kevin Smith or anything else he's written about it, it's pretty clear that he felt less like a writer and more like a scripter, since the outline of the story was coming to him from the outside. Additionally, Nicolas Cage was set to play Superman, and it doesn't take a lot of work with Google to find images of Nicolas Cage in the Superman suit for the screen tests, featuring the long hair that Superman had in the Death or Return of Superman storyline from the comics. I am quite thankful that that version of Superman never actually made it to the screen. And because that didn't work, the project was virtually dead for a while, especially since all these false starts and that the issues that they had getting that one together meant that it was going long enough that we had some pretty spectacular failures of the Batman series, particularly Batman and Robin. We'll discuss those a lot more in our big screen Batman series through 2014 which will use the same podcast feed as our Silver Screen Superman series. But then things changed again. Marvel Comics had almost gone into complete bankruptcy. It was previously owned by Ron Perlman, who also owned Revlon, and he had a habit of doing aggressive short-term expansion that couldn't be maintained, selling a company off, pocketing the money for himself, and then watching someone else pick up the rubble. And Marvel Comics was one of the companies he owned that almost fell completely apart. It was eventually bought out by Avia Rad. He was actually a toy manufacturer who had the Marvel Properties license. So his business was based on making the action figures that go along with Marvel characters. So he needed to make sure that Marvel survived, and he'd actually made enough money that he could take over the company. And his first goal was getting Marvel Comics on the big screen. He did that first with Blade. And Blade wasn't a huge success, but it did outperform all expectations by a fairly wide margin. Nobody expected it to be as successful as it was in an spawning two sequels of its own. Then came the first X-Men film released through 20th Century Fox in the year 2000, and that was huge, one of the biggest movies of the year. So people were really starting to notice not just the comic properties that came out of Blade and Ghost World and some other non-superhero titles like Road to Perdition, but the X-Men and the superheroes in general. Follow that up with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, and superheroes were coming back to the screen in a big way, probably because the new special effects allowed you to actually do them right. So Warner Brothers, which at this point is now the parent company of DC Comics and owns them, wanted to get... Superman back on the big screen. There are a few directors in Hollywood who are big superhero fans themselves and therefore make pretty natural choices in terms of directors to bring in one of these adaptations. Now, when the X-Men was first put together under producer Lauren Schuler Donner, Richard Donner's wife, and a few others, one of the first directors that they had attached was Brett Ratner, who ended up leaving the project. Mick G, who directed the Charlie's Angels movies, was also attached at one point, and while they were attached, Warner Brothers was farming out looking for additional scripts. One of those was written by J.J. Abrams, who has since gone on to relaunch the Star Trek franchise. Now, Abrams takes a lot of flack for his script. That's also online, and it is, it is of questionable quality. At the very least, it is a dramatic departure 
from the canon and the source material. And that's not necessarily because J.J. Abrams thought it was a good idea. It's because that is the job he was hired to do. Warner Brothers came to him on a Friday, said they wanted to relaunch Superman. They wanted to do it at least with a trilogy, and they wanted a deliberate and definite departure from the source material to the point where you wouldn't necessarily recognize it. That is the job Abrams was asked to do, and he was given a weekend to do it. And that's what he did. He came back after a weekend with a script for the first film and an outline for two sequels. Now, his script was a very dramatic departure. Krypton was still out there alive and well. Kal-El was not the last survivor. He was a prince. Jor-El was the king about to go into civil war. Lex Luthor was a CIA agent who was actually a Kryptonian in secret. There were a tremendous number of changes, right down to Superman getting his powers from his suit and not having them as an inherent part of himself. Again, Abrams knows it was a departure because that's what he's hired for. You can track down interviews where he tells people flat out, it was a rush job, he knows it was nowhere close to finished, and that was the direction that they wanted it taken. He wasn't even sure if he was going to stay on board in the long haul because it was such a dramatic departure. In any event, Brett Ratner didn't stay on board the project. He wasn't really happy with the direction it was going, so he left. And meanwhile, over at Fox, director Brian Singer wasn't too thrilled with the way he was being treated on X-Men The Last Stand with Fox. There were too many decisions were being taken out of his hands as director, and he wanted to have more control over the movie that was going to have his name on it. He had signed a three-picture deal with Fox, but he ended up walking away from that deal and went over to Warner Brothers to work on Superman Returns after he was invited over by Warner Brothers themselves. He brought his co-writers Marion Doherty and Dan Harris with him. He brought composer John Ottman with him, actor James Marsden, who had been playing Cyclops in the X-Men films up to this point, and several others. Oddly enough, the hole that he left in the director chair for X-Men 3 was filled in by Brad Ratner. In any event, Singer came on board the project, and the first thing he did was throw out J.J. Abrams' script. To his mind, Donner's work had to be respected. It was just those first two films he felt were just tremendous, and they needed to be respected and left alone. So the approach he took was both a relaunch and his own version of Superman 3, basically discarding the original versions of Superman 3 and 4. Everything that he references from that original franchise in his film comes from the first two and not from the sequels. So Singer set about recasting and bringing people in, and he ended up hiring Brandon Routh in the title role of Superman. Incidentally, one of the actors that Routh beat out for that role was Henry Cavill. Now, Henry Cavill plays Superman in Man of Steel, which will have been out for about five months by the time you hear this, but is not yet out at the time of this recording. So then Routh and his team set about putting together Superman, and this turned out to be the most expensive Superman movie yet. Prior to this, the most expensive was about $55 million in terms of the budget. Superman Returns budget came in at the $270 million mark. Now, proportionately, it took in about 25% of its total box office in the opening weekend, which is higher than any of the first three Superman films. As I mentioned before, the opening weekend box office tends to be in a high proportion if audiences don't accept the film and it doesn't perform well. That said, you can't compare the percentages post-year 2000 to percentages prior to the year 2000. One of the things that studios have been doing in the past few years is releasing more and more copies of films. So in the mid-90s, Batman Forever made the record for being shown on more screens at any one time, and that they printed about 3,000 copies. By the time Phantom Menace came out, they were printing about 10,000 copies to be shown in theaters. So the exhibitors do get a portion 
of the box office ticket. They don't get the entire ticket, they just get a percentage of it. And that's part of the reason concession prices are so high. I used to work at a theater. The theater I worked at could sell out every seat of every show on opening night. It was a little four-screen theater. Total capacity was about 800 people. We could sell 1,600 tickets a day. If nobody bought from concession, the theater still lost money. The percentage that we were able to keep as the exhibitor was that small. Over time, it does grow. So opening week and the first two weeks, the studio gets the biggest percentage of the box office. The studio's percentage shrinks each week as an incentive for the exhibitor to hang on to those films a little bit longer. If they're still selling well, if they don't sell quite as many tickets as a new movie, a fairly full theater could still put more money in that exhibitor's pocket. This is part of the reason the new releases tend to be the first to start on the evening schedule. If people show up and the movie's already sold out, well, they'll go see something else, and the exhibitor gets a bigger cut. Things have been changing lately. The studios are going out of their way to try and make sure that the people who are wanting to see this movie in theaters can see it opening weekend, and they do that by filling the screens. They're doing it not just because it's more profitable for them, but because it's one way to combat the online piracy that's been steadily growing. A lot of people who download the movies illegally aren't doing it because they want to do it free. Instead of doing it legally, they're doing it because it's either not playing in their area or it was sold out when they went, and they just don't want to wait two weeks and get spoiled all over when they're seeing people discuss it on the internet or at work or whatever. So movies are expected to take in more money in their opening weekend box office than they used to, <coughs> both in terms of raw numbers and in percentages. So that said, I still don't think this movie is quite up to the level of the original Richard Donner film. It's comparable to the theatrical release of Superman 2 more so than the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. It is better than the Superman 3 and 4 that we got. So it does have some good strengths to it, but it's definitely not perfect. So in the strengths column, first and foremost, there's the airplane rescue, and largely the entire first act. So the first act of the film establishes that Superman has been away for a while, you see where the characters are, and that's where we see a lot of the recap, a little bit of the origin story, and just get a lot of that material established. Then comes the airplane rescue. Now the airplane rescue was designed to be a quick homage to earlier versions. So they intended to make it an homage to the Fleischer cartoons, uh, Japa Tours, which we discussed in February. It'd be an homage to the Air Force One scene in the 1978 Superman film, which was in turn homaged in the comic book reboot that happened after the Crisis of Infinite Earths in 1986 by John Byrne, where Superman and Lois Lane first meet after Superman saves a plane that she's a passenger on. In the script for Superman Returns, this was a pretty quick sequence where Superman shows up, he releases the space shuttle on the back of the aircraft, gets that launched, goes back to the plane and just brings it safely to the ground, and it's over. That is not the way it came out in the finished process. One of the people that Brian Singer brought on board was a storyboard artist by the name of Gabriel Hardman. Hardman is very popular as a storyboard artist, especially with Warner Brothers, because he is also a comic book artist. So if you track him down through Comixology or your local comic book retailer, you find a lot of good stuff that has his name on it. So he understands how to draw superheroes, he understands the visual process, and he's a good storyboard artist on top of that. So when he was doing the storyboarding for Superman Returns, he greatly expanded that airplane rescue sequence. And they looked at what he had done with the storyboards and decided, that's pretty damn good. And that's what they shot. So what we see in the finished product, which is probably the best sequence in the entire film, is largely due to Gabriel Hardman, and then others looking at his work, recognize the value in it, and managing to get Warner Brothers to spend the extra money to get that sequence made. You can see clips of that sequence in pretty much every trailer for this film that's ever been released. It also does a few things that are nice in terms of pointing out some of the issues of Superman, such as how he's great at swooping in and capturing the bad guy, not so good with things like Miranda rights and due process, which is why Lex Luthor is free again. 
there's also some pretty good casting in this film. Uh, Frank Langella is, I think, a very good Perry White, even though he was a last-minute substitute, just as Jackie Cooper was. The original casting was Hugh Laurie, who had to drop out because the TV series House had gotten so popular, the schedules didn't work out. The other casting choice he made was Brandon Routh as Superman. Now, Routh is not quite up to Christopher Reeve's level, but I was quite impressed with him, and he clearly respects Reeve and is doing his part to sort of fill the shoes, or the boots, you might say, that Chris Reeve filled so well. We also see some nice cameos for Noelle Neal and Jack Larson. Noelle Neal, we've discussed before, she was Lois Lane in the serials from 1948 to 1950. She went on to play Lois Lane in seasons two through six of The Adventures of Superman, opposite George Reeves as Superman, and opposite Jack Larson as Jimmy Olsen. We also see Eva Marie Saint as Martha Kent, and they went to great lengths to respect the work of Richard Donner. And not only do they have an opening sequence that feels like the trip from Krypton to Earth as they bring in that trip from Krypton to Earth, the credits feel like the 1978 credits. They quote the interview that Lois Lane did with Superman, although they missed the joke around his weight. When, when Lex Luthor goes to get some kryptonite, he finds it in a meteorite that originally landed in Addis Ababa which is, again, a reference to the first film. There's comments about Lex having been to the Fortress before, just as he had been in Superman 2. And there's also some references to the night that Lois and Clark spent together in Superman 2 when Clark must turn into a human. There's also numerous points where they bring in the John Williams score, including the original Warner Brothers logo right at the start of the film. There's also a lot of direct quotes of dialogue used in this film that came out of the Richard Donner movies. There's also a lot of attention to detail in the production. The Daily Planet looks great. In a lot of the scenes, you can see the new suit for Superman has a texture to it of some kind. They look like little triangles on film. If you take the Warner Brothers studio tour in Burbank the suit was on display in the past. It may be on display again. They pulled it down, I know, so that they could use it on the Smallville series. I don't know if they brought it back or if they did something else with it. But those little triangles that you can barely make out on the Blu-ray or on the big screen when this was originally released are actually small versions of the Superman S-Shield. So the entire suit is covered from head to toe in those little reproductions of that House of L shield. That said, in spite of these strengths, there are some issues. First of all, while I enjoy having those homages to Donner and having a new version of Superman 3 that's better than the one we got, this is a sequel that came out 26 years later and was marketed to an audience that wasn't necessarily 26 years old. So a lot of the audience members who saw it didn't catch a lot of the dialogue in it. If you don't recognize it as a quote, it does feel out of place in the new film. Now, the first act, as I said, is largely very good. Now, I would say that first act ends with the end of the airplane rescue. As I mentioned in this and other podcasts, most scripts use a three-act structure. The first act ends with the point of no return. So this is where we are moving forward, and we know the story is in motion, can't be stopped. The end of the second act is the reversal, where things change and they're not quite what they seem. Here I'd say the first act ends right with that airplane rescue. It's a great big action piece that ends with the world realizing Superman is back. He has returned. The second act drags a little bit. This also has a lot of homages, not just to the Donner films, but to other elements in the Superman mythos, including the covered action comics number one, where Superman's lifting the car over his head. While I thought a lot of these were great when I was watching in theaters the first time, on repeated viewings, they kind of get in the way and slow things. And first-time viewers who are not already established fans and don't necessarily know the comics could find them more distracting because they won't necessarily get the connections. They're not quick little references, some fairly long references. I also find a lot of this second act is time that's not spent on Superman or Clark Kent. There's a lot of it on Richard White, Lois Lane, and their son Jason. When we get into the third act, this is where we get out to Lex Luthor's new continent, his plan is revealed, 
Superman gets beaten up by criminals, but at no time does he come back and sort of return the favor and round them up. So he's beaten, he's essentially defeated, and he doesn't get a chance to come back and deal with them again. In fact, he doesn't hit anything at any point in the movie. He spends about as much time getting saved as he does doing the saving in this act. And he's saved by Lois, Jason, and Richard. Jason is a big issue for me. Yes, in Superman 2, Superman became human, he and Lois spent the night together. It is entirely possible that Lois could have Superman's child. But the way that movie ended, doesn't matter if it's the theatrical cut or the director's cut, either way, Lois Lane had no recollection of that night. So now we have a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter who is known specifically for not backing down, who finds out that she was probably impregnated by an alien who disappeared for five years right around the time she would have gotten pregnant with no explanation at the time, and she has no memory of any action which could get her pregnant. I don't understand why she's not extremely confrontational with Superman after she finds out about this, and why she seems so willing to accept it. And then to top it off, when the movie's done, Superman does come out on top, but it doesn't really feel like a great win. Lois is still with Richard, and not with Superman. Lex Luthor is not in custody. As far as we know, Clark Kent is still homeless. It's a sort of happy ending, but it's not the triumphant return that many of us were hoping for. So at the end of the day, it is still a flawed film, but it is better than anything in live action that had not been directed by Richard Donner up to the point of its release. I say up to the point of its release because I'm trying to keep an open mind about Man of Steel, which, at the time of this recording, is not out yet, as I mentioned earlier. But if all goes as planned, it should be on home video in plenty of time to be the subject of next month's podcast. Please join us then.